Welcome to the May the Smoke Be With You podcast. And now here's your host, Joe Levitt. All right, our guest today is a, is a true barbecue legend and a member of the Barbecue Hall of Fame. He has penned over 30 cookbooks, and uh, his barbecue Bible is a must-have for any wannabe pitmaster weekend warrior. Uh, you have seen this guest on numerous TV appearances, and he hosts uh, Project Fire on PBS stations across the country, currently in season number four. He's a very busy guy. Uh, it's taken us a hot minute to get together, but I am really excited to have our guest here today. Please welcome in Stephen Reichland to the May the Smoke Be With You podcast. Hey, Stephen, how are you? I am terrific. How about you? Doing great. Where are you joining us from? Where's Where's home? I am uh, on Chappaquiddick Island in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. Okay. Well, sounds lovely. And I bet this is a perfect time of year up there. The oh, weather, man. fall, is is that the time to visit? It is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, but don't tell anybody. September, October, right. the glory month. A uh, little, little, little Christmas to the air. Cool mornings, bright sunny afternoons. Just beautiful. I love it. Uh, well, it is on a, a bucket list. That's a one kind of area of the country that I've not yet visited, which is the is the pure northeast section. Uh, need to get up there. Need to get a on a lobster boat and do some of that kind of stuff, you know, uh, and and enjoy some of uh, that creation up there because it, it just looks beautiful. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we love to do on this show is just kind of get your background, your you know, kind of your your culinary journey. Uh, what was food like growing up for you? Uh, as a kid in your home, what was what was food like? Ha ha! No, well, it wasn't actually very uh, exciting. My mother was a ballet <laughs> dancer. Uh, I grew up on TV dinners primarily. Um, when uh, my when we did grill, uh, my mother was also the grill master. My mother was a very uh, mercurial person. She used to light the charcoal with gasoline. Gasoline, if you imagine. Okay. And. Uh, her idea was steak. It was uh, Pittsburgh rare, meaning that it was charred black as asphalt on the outside, and uh, the heart was still beating inside. Um, nice. We ate unfashionably late at the time. This is back in the 50s, so you know we would eat 8:30, 9 o'clock. And I used to envy my neighbor kids who uh, who all ate at 5:30. I thought that was so normal, but. Um, my grandparents' generation, they were, they were great cooks. I had an aunt, Aunt Annette, who was a fabulous Eastern European Jewish cook. I had an aunt on the other side of the family who was a Sephardic cook, uh, did wonderful Greek uh, cooking. So, you know, this kind of yin-yang of not very good food at home and great food among my family. Yeah, what was, what was that favorite TV dinner? Uh, you know, was it the Swanson? Uh, Swanson, and, yeah, I think it was Salisbury steak, and then you peeled back one little corner of it so that the uh, Betty, uh, the apple brown Betty, would uh, brown and all the rest of the stuff just sort of stewed to a nice gray uh, mush. Kids these days don't realize what they what they really missed with the old fashioned yeah. TV dinners. Uh, How about so, fish sticks? You know? How about I mean, Mrs. No. Paul's fish sticks. That was pretty <laughs> horrific when you think about it <laughs> I don't want to see uh, you know how it's made I don't want to see an episode on uh, Mrs. Paul's fish sticks on on how it's made uh, for sure because I don't think I no. would want to eat a fish stick again but you know what you're actually we're getting ready to say, take the uh, actually we're starting a new series on PBS it's called Planet Barbecue 
And oh, nice. uh, I'm just thinking I ought to reinvent the fish stick for uh, 2023. I think that's so, a great Joe, idea. Thank, thank you for that, Joe. That was uh, a good, good thought. <laughs> Glad I could help. Glad I could help. So at what point, you know, in these endless nights of, of TV dinners, did the culinary bug bite you? Very early. I always used to love to cook growing up. I'd wait for my parents to leave the house on Saturday morning, and then I'd pull out all the pots and pans, and half the spice rack would go into my scrambled egg. Always attracted to food and cooking. Um, when I was in college, uh, you know, I lived in a communal house, and um, so I did a lot of cooking for that. All of my jobs, my after-class jobs, were food-related. I worked in this this amazing old world deli that made its own sausage. Uh, I went to school in Portland, Oregon, Reed College in Portland, Oregon. So, you know, that was just the, the beginning of the uh, Willamette Valley wine boom, uh, American mm-hmm. artisanal cheeses. You know, I, I, I've been lucky to be at the right place at the right time for many food things. Yeah. And then you, you were, you're, you're classically trained, right? Like you went to, to Paris to become like trained or did you do any training here before you left? Was it just restaurant jobs? Like how did that all happen? Because that's, uh, that's not a normal course that everybody gets to take. Oh, definitely not a normal course. Well, I, uh, <laughs> majored in French literature. Uh, I wrote my thesis on a medieval French poet named Christine de Pizon. Who turned out Every, everybody, to be, everybody knows, everybody knows her. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's, yeah. Well, actually she turned out to be Europe's first feminist, the first woman okay. to earn her, uh, earn her living by her pen. Uh, nice. but being a clueless 20 year old, you know, her feminist message just completely went over my head. Uh, <laughs> however, while I was doing my research, I came across a medieval cookbook in the stacks at uh, the Reed College library called the form of curry. And it was actually reproductions of uh, two medieval English cookbooks around 1375. And I don't know, that concept just blew my mind that, you know, people writing cookbooks well, at the time, it was, you know, 600, 700 years ago, writing mm-hmm. the operative word, of course, because the manuscripts were all written by hand. So uh, on a uh, lark and um, uh, a writing session that may or may not have been fueled by a couple of bottles of Retsina, I uh, made a proposal. I, I applied for a Watson Foundation fellowship. Tom Watson founded IBM, uh, and these fellowships were designed to send promising young college students to uh, anywhere in the world to do a project that they found interesting but that was not academic. So I proposed to study medieval cooking in Europe. Much to my astonishment, the day after my birthday, I got a packet from the Watson Foundation uh, on Benefit Street in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm. I had received a Watson. Yay! So I actually got a grant to eat and drink my way through Europe. Now, medieval recipes were a lot more vague than modern recipes. Basically, they would say something like, take some of this, that, and the other, and combine to the customer instruction. No measurements, no cooking times, uh, very scant instructions. So, and, and by the way, you know, when you go to a pharmacy and you see the RX, you know, that's a symbol right. of a prescription. In the Middle Ages, medicine and cooking were, I mean, they were just virtually two sides of the same coin. And that RX is an abbreviation for requipe, which means to take. So, take this, that, and the other. So take I have Newton, you know, Mercury, mix them together, and you have a perfect 
skin ointment for acne. Uh, in any case, uh, not knowing really much about cooking, I thought, well, if I studied modern French cuisine, maybe I could kind of learn the system and understand what I was reading in medieval manuscripts. So off I went to the Cordon Bleu and then later to another school called Lavarin. And I did have a classical French culinary uh, uh, training. And to just sort of set the stage, you know, this was uh, a very long time ago, back when the food processor was first invented. I remember vigorous debates at the school about was this the device of the devil? You know, we wow. used to, when we made uh, fish mousses or pesto, we would use a mortar and pestle and force the mixture through a hoop set. So you can imagine when a food processor showed up. You know, so that was a game wow. changer, right? Yeah, it was a game changer, major game changer. Of course, everything in France at that time was cooked in a frying pan, uh, in a saucepan, uh, or in the oven. There was no grilling, and the French had this odd, this odd sort of uh, obsession with not browning food. So. When you make an omelet in the French style, it remains perfectly yellow. Uh -huh. uh, they had a technique called sweating vegetables, where you would saute vegetables at a low heat covered with a piece of parchment paper. And the idea was you'd make them soft, but you wouldn't let them brown. Well, the first thing I discovered when many years later I got into grill grilling was that brown is beautiful. I mean, that, that that's where the flavor is, that caramelization, that sort of razor's edge between cooked and burnt. Right. So uh, the French education was fantastic, uh, but and it gave me a great grounding and, and a basis for what I was to do later. But you know, I I strayed very far from uh, from the kitchens of Paris uh, in my subsequent work. So where where did these two worlds marry? Where did the uh, you know where where did you kind of leave behind the the classically trained French side and really start to understand your love for live fire cooking, uh, which which is... Well, we got to spend about another 20 years to get there, but uh, <laughs> okay. I'll try and summarize it very quickly. So I always wanted to be a writer. I always loved food. Uh, mm -hmm. And during my Watson year, I um, came to sort of be fascinated by the intersection of food and history and culture. And in a sense, that's what I've been doing ever since. Mm -hmm. I moved to Boston after Paris, became the restaurant critic for Boston Magazine, then the wine and spirits columnist for GQ Magazine. Uh, at one point, uh, my mentor, the woman who ran the Laverne Cooking School, a woman named Ann Willen, said, you know, Steve, you'll never learn earn a living writing cookbooks. So gauntlet, gauntlet was thrown. And yeah. of course, I wanted to earn a living writing cookbooks. So I wrote my first cookbook, which is called The Taste of the Mountains Cooking School Cookbook. That was named after a little cooking school I ran in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Um, critical success, uh, fairly modest sales. Then I wrote another book called uh, Celebration of the Seasons. Uh, and uh, that was a book that you know kind of preceded Alice Waters by you know, at least 20 years. Uh, it was a, a book really about seasonal cooking. Um, and I wrote several books on uh, the New England restaurant scene because I was still the restaurant critic for Boston Magazine. But my first book success really didn't happen until I moved to Miami to marry my wife Barbara. And at that point, I wrote a book called Miami Spice, and it was a book about the new Floridian cuisine. My wife uh, was a publicist, so 
you know, I thought you write a book and then the rest takes care of itself. Well, right. actually writing a book in a funny sense is the easy part, you know, and then promoting it going out on book tour. But with Miami Spice, I'd hooked up with a publisher called Workman Publishing, which has been my publisher now for 25 years. Wow. And uh, Workman's first, you know, the book came out. First thing they said is buy a suitcase and uh, and a phone card. And you got out on book tour. So I did a 20-city book tour, which is uh, something I've repeated almost annually for the last 25 years with every book I've done. And yeah. Miami Spice, you know, I was off to the races. Now, barbecue would have to wait a little bit longer. Uh, the, the year was uh, 1994, uh, the place Miami where I was living. I remember the weather, sitting on my white Adirondack chair on the porch. Uh, it was kind of one of those first cool days you get after six months of beastly hot heat in mm. Miami. And this idea struck me, and I always liken it to sort of hearing a voice from one high that said, follow the fire. But the idea was that I was to travel the world, circumnavigate the world, and study how people grill in different cultures and countries. Because if you think about it, grilling is the most universal and ancient cooking method, but everywhere it's done differently. Right. So uh, I dashed off a book proposal, and normally that's a project that takes a month or so. I had a contract back the following week. That's also a process that takes a month or so. Mm -hmm. So clearly my idea and my publisher's vision were right on course. And that was going to be a little modest book, maybe, I don't know, 50, 60 recipes. Uh, I'd knock it off in a year. Anyway, wound up growing to more than 500 recipes. Uh, it took me four years to write. I wrote three other books while I was writing it in order to be able to keep funding the research. And that book was the uh, Barbecue Bible. Wow. And it came out. It changed my life. You know, I hope it changed many people. Lives. It was, you know, it was a, the right book at the right time. Yeah. And in, in the world of culinary, uh, the James Beard Award is something that's uh, extremely coveted for anybody in, in any aspect of culinary. Uh, something in Chef's Desire. Five of your cookbooks have been awarded a James Beard Award. That That's pretty incredible. And and I imagine you're in, in rare company at, at five uh, James Beard Awards for, for cookbooks. Uh, I've never done an account, but it was a uh, tremendous honor. And uh, actually, uh, if I uh, may share some good news with you, I just found out that my newest book, How to Grow Vegetables, is also up for a, uh, a James Beard Award this year. Oh, that's amazing. Congratulations. Where, where, where does that sit kind of in your in, in your career as you look back? Where, where did those James Beard Awards sit for you as, as an honor? Um, well, you know, it's a nice thing to put on your resume and in your biography. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's always about what you're doing now, what you're going to do in the future. You can't, you know, what you did in the past is nice, but that's kind of not. But what you're right. doing now that matters. Sure. So as you you know look at the kind of the the journey that you took there from uh, your early culinary journeys, your trainings, uh, you know, and now you're you're pretty focused, you know, on on that live fire cooking. Do you still find that those techniques that you learned back in in cooking school are you still using those at some degree, or you know, was it the no browning uh, thing that just left behind and there's 
really you know no correlation between your your classically trained uh, chef mind and what you do day to day now. Oh no, absolutely. There is uh, I use those techniques every day, uh, and I mean to give you an example, you know, chopping vegetables. Uh, there's a right way to hold a knife and do it. Um, uh, boning a chicken, cutting a chicken into uh, eight pieces, uh, filleting a fish. You know, those are all essential techniques. Um, that being said, you know, it's a little bit like, um, I guess it's be a little bit like learning Latin or at least doing a deep drill down into, uh, into grammar uh, in order later to be able to write you know, the thing to compose songs. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So today, you, you've obviously, you know, you've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, cooking. Uh, you know, I don't, Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers, you know, says it takes 10,000 hours to become, you know, an expert in a discipline. And you have easily surpassed that. If you, if you were to venture a guess, like how many hours you've spent over a live fire, like what, what would you even, how would you even calculate that? Well, to give you an example, I mean, I would say I fire up the grill at least five days a week and often for lunch as well as for dinner. Okay. Um, so multiply that by, let's say I've been doing this pretty much full time since 1998. So that's, yeah. you know, it's a lot of grill sessions. Yeah. I'll, uh, off, off the air, I'll try to, I'll try to get us a, a number and I'll, I'll shoot it to yeah. you via email and say, do you, do you, do you think oh, this, is, this is, this is, this is this is accurate. So what what makes yeah. you kind of keep uh, keep going back to the flames each and every day? Like why there's you know because there's easier ways to cook, you know, mm-hmm. but yet you you choose to really just embrace this. What what is it about the fire that keeps you coming back? You know, there's a primal fascination with fire uh, hmm. from our earliest uh, days as a species. You know, Homo erectus and distant human ancestor discovered cooking over fire about 1.8 million years ago. It was the greatest leap forward humanity ever made, and it's Mm. defined us not only um, what we look like, how we think, how we speak, social organization. So on one level, that is the sustained fascination. On another level, you know, when I was a kid, I was a bit of a pyromaniac. I was that kind (laughs) of kid who would build elaborate uh, model airplanes and, uh, and model battleships and then fill them with firecrackers and airplane glue and set them on fire. So I guess, uh, I guess I found a way to sort of sublimate. I think that's what psychologists call, you know, these, uh, perhaps unwholesome fascination with fire into a, a way that could actually make a living and do the world some good. Yeah. Did you ever, uh, did you ever catch a couch on fire? Uh, just asking for a friend. Uh, n- never a couch, but uh, okay. there were a couple of hairy moments growing up. Okay. Carpet in the living room? Did you ever ever do that? Nah, but one time okay. my dad came home from work early, and he came home to see a paper airplane that was uh, flaming coming down the uh, steps from the, the uh, upstairs landing down to the living room. Of course, that I was, was prob- racing down to catch it in time, but uh, of course. it was an embarrassing moment. Yeah, it was in your mind. It was just an epic World War II dogfight, and that plane just got there hit. Go. And yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so oh, I'm, here. I'm hearing some uh, some some nods of recognition there. Yeah, yeah. I I had a little bit of uh, pyro in me as a kid as well, uh, and and still do. There's nothing like to me just tending a live fire, like a campfire, especially just like 
building that fire, watching it, growing it, just being so proud of your your fire when it, when it's, this is a good fire. Yeah, this is. I could sit there and just watch a good fire all all night, all night long. Um, so you know, you you cook on live fire. One thing that I kind of notice about you uh, is that you don't seem to discriminate on your on your cooking apparatus. You have, I think, an arsenal of of different types of grills. Um, you know, a couple things. You know, do you have some some favorite types that you kind of lean towards, or maybe favorite types for certain types of cooks? Maybe that's a maybe that's a good way to kind of give you some parameters there. Well, I love my wood burn. <laughs> You know, I love all my grills. It's a little bit like who's your favorite kid. Sure. Um, you know, I love my wood burners. I love my charcoal burners. But like everybody else, sometimes I get home late from work and I just want to get dinner on the table quickly. So fire up a gas grill. I'm not prejudiced against gas grills in any way. Yeah. Uh, in fact, lately I've been doing a lot of plancha grilling. You know, what some people might argue is not grilling at all. Although I put my plancha actually over my fire. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there are, believe it or not, and contrary to what I may have written in previous books, there are some foods you can't grill or that taste better cooked in a different method than grilling. Okay. And then, so when you're, like, what makes you decide? I guess it's protein probably dependent or vegetable dependent, you know, what you're going to fire up. Uh, or do you just look out there and go, well, I've not fired up, uh, not fired up old old Betty over there in a while. Maybe I should give her a little a little love. Well, I think you know yes to all of those questions. I mean, uh, you know, I have my standbys on a weeknight. Uh, if I'm smoking something, you know, obviously I'm going to fire up a smoker. Or if I'm rotisserie, uh, I have a technique I developed called smoke tissue cooking, where you smoke you rotisserie on a charcoal grill and you add wood chips to create wood smoke. Mm. So. That's about our favorite way to cook chicken, and you know we eat chicken a couple times a month, roast chicken a couple times a month. So um, I will do that. Uh, you know, if we're having company or I'm doing a party or trying to do something a little bit more theatrical, uh, you know, I might go to a wood burner. Uh, thank, come Thanksgiving, you know, I'm going to fire up my egg. I'm going to do a turkey on the egg. So uh, yeah, then I use them all. Yeah. Now, I, I think there's a you know, people get very opinionated when it comes to grills. And I'm sure you've, of, of all people, have, have witnessed this. There's the, the people that look down on you for using a gas grill because they, they you know, think that that's too controlled or too too easy, maybe, if you, if you do that. Um, but, you know, over the past five to seven years, uh, you know, or so, the, the advent of the pellet grill has just really transformed, you know, outdoor outdoor cooking how do you how do you feel about pellet grills? Do you have do you have an opinion? Uh, what do you think it's done for for outdoor cooking? Well, I think it has gotten millions of people outdoor cooking and has uh, hugely simplified the process of barbecue. You know, it's really enabled uh, for the first time in the history of grilling for you to be able to set it and forget it. In effect. Uh, I think that pellet smokers, you know, I like them best at a low temperature when I'm actually smoking. Uh, some of them work at high temperatures, and a couple of them, like the Memphis Wood Fired Grill, you know, you can actually remove the plate over the burn chamber and you can really direct grill over a pellet fire. So okay. that's, uh, you know, that's kind of a neat thing. I guess, you know, my feeling is anything that gets people outside 
Yeah, I think that's a, you know, I, I think there was part of me in, in my evolution. It was, you know, started on a gas grill and then went to uh, kind of a, a, a cheap little offset, then a Weber Smoky Mountain, and now I'm in a Kamado style cooker. And, and you, there, there's this, this part of you that you just always, you know, you're judging people. And, and for a while I was very, uh, you know, charcoal wood that's it pellets are, are bad but I, I'm with you now I, I just see it as a as a way that millions of people are outdoor cooking that that wouldn't be outdoors uh, at all and I, you know and I wouldn't be surprised if you start on a pellet grill and then you know you see your next door neighbor with a wood burner or a, you know a stick burner absolutely and you know you may graduate up yeah, and there, there's something about the pellet. I do not own one right now, but there's something about it that's very intriguing that would be easy for me to to send directions home to my wife or my girls and say, "Hey, get that thing fired up, and let's let's throw some some chicken or something on there, and we can we can have dinner tonight, and I don't have to get home and light the fire and do all the things." And uh, you know, there's 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 some advantages there. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I I think you are you are such uh, an expert when it comes to techniques and things like that. I would love to just get some some techniques from you on where do you see weekend warriors kind of make the biggest mistakes when it comes to outdoor live fire cooking? Well, you know, I think the biggest mistake falls under the heading of heat control. And, um, you know, in a nutshell, you want to control the fire, not have it control you. Uh, those of us with a Y chromosome tend to repeat the same mistakes over and over without learning them from them. And what? among no. those mistakes, you know, putting too much food on the grill. I mean, I always recommend the 30% mm. rule where 30% of your grill is food free. So if you get a flare up, you can dodge the flames. I always recommend with charcoal grilling or wood grilling that you have a safety zone of a third of your grill fire free. Again, so if you get a flare up. Um, yeah, that's great. Uh, you, you know the whole the, the, the psychology and um, and uh, physics of grilling are a little different. Indoors, we're used to turning up and down the heat, and you do that to some extent on a gas grill or pellet grill. But at, with charcoal and wood, you're really moving closer to the fire, moving away from the fire. You know, cooking directly over the fire, cooking next to the fire. Um, so. You know, uh, I mean, generally, the bigger the piece of meat, the lower the temperature needs to be, the longer the cooking time needs to be. Um, Adding wood smoke, you know, another sort of guide thing is if one cup of wood chips added to your fire every hour is good, why not add off six cups, you know, uh, the first first 15 minutes, that ought to do the trick. And, you know, then you wind up with a mouthful of creosote. So, yeah. You know, when I when I first started kind of my barbecue journey, uh, you know, I started with what I call the safe safe cuts of meat, big pork butt, mm-hmm. super super forgiving. Uh, you it takes a lot to kind of screw that up. Uh, moved into ribs, but for a long time, that uh, that mysterious mystic, uh, out of touch piece of, of meat was was the brisket. I was I was afraid of it. It was it was costlier. Uh, you know, depending on when it was, I mean, it could have cost me sixty seventy you know dollars for a full packer, and so I was always nervous to do it um you know so w- what would you say to those folks who were like me they were just afraid of cooking brisket of even even venturing out there because you wrote an entire book dedicated to that the brisket That's chronicles right. is that that yes 
Well, I, you know, I guess my advice to you would be, uh, first of all, <laughs> pick up a copy of that book because I think my <laughs> brisket recipe runs something like 10 or 12 pages. So I walk you, hold wow. your hand and, you know, walk you through it step by step. Uh, or, you know, if you my uh, if you watch my TV shows, uh, if you go on stephenreichland.com, you can access my TV shows. Or uh, my website is barbecuebible.com and sign up for the Up and Smoke newsletter. We get brisket, that, you know, at least twice a year. It's a, a very popular topic. But just do it, you know. Uh, yeah, you may have a little skin and, uh, and pride and money in the game, but you're, not gonna learn, you're never going to learn unless you try it. And kind of two hints that have really helped me with brisket. And one is that uh, you hit about 160, 170 degrees wrapped in uh, butcher paper. It has to be unlined butcher paper. Uh, and that'll seal in moistness, but keep your bark nice and crusty. The second is when your brisket, you know, don't pull it too soon. You really got to go to, uh, really have to go to about you know, like 205 on a brisket then put it in a cooler and rest it for two hours and that is so insulated cooler is what i mean not a refrigerator and that's so hard to do you know my god you have 12 hours invested in this thing it smells so totally amazing you just want to dive in but and now you're telling me i've got to wait for uh, two hours but that will really help the meat relax and give you a brisket that's much juicier uh your brisket chronicles is is filled with uh, obviously, a traditional kind of what we'd call Central Texas, you know, salt pepper brisket that's in there. Um, but what you, there's a lot of other ways in that book that you talk about eating brisket. Is there a is there just a personal favorite? If you say this is the way I love brisket, what which way would you pick if you had to pick just just one? Well, to be honest with you, I mean, if I were making brisket for my family, I would do the first time as brisket, you know classic hill country brisket but yep. i think the recipe that most captured my imagination and most delighted me was the korean style where they take a brisket that normally cooks for 12 hours right 14 hours they freeze it they put it on a meat slicer they slice it paper thin and then they direct grill the brisket over hibachi so there you're looking at brisket that takes all of maybe one to two minutes to cook and wow. because it's sliced so thin and you cook it over a hot fire, it has a completely different texture. To, I mean, still the rich beefiness, but it's not all that wood smoke and salt. It's uh, a very fresh, interesting way to cook a biscuit. Now, there's uh, that sounds sounds amazing. Uh, it's just yet another reason that my wife needs to let me get a meat slicer. So I'm just I I'm. You need a meat slicer. Uh, thank you, and I'll say Stephen said it too. Don't so. tell, right. You need one, but don't tell anybody, but you can actually use a food processor with the slicing disc. It doesn't work Listen, quite okay, as well. I'll, I'm going to edit that out for my wife's version. I didn't say um, that. Yeah, I didn't but, say yeah. that. <laughs> um, now, uh, you know, you, you talked about, you know, that, that low and slow method, you know, the bigger the piece of meat, yeah. typically the, the lower the heat, the longer the cook, those type of mm -hmm. things. Uh, there is there is a school of thought for, for hot and fast. Is that something you've experimented with? Uh, and what, what have what's kind of been your results or your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, we did, uh, well, we did it at barbecue university. And then in fact, the recipe for hot and fast, uh, brisket is in the brisket chronicles. I would say it produces a good brisket, but not a great brisket. Okay. 
Um, I mean, I would never, you know, I, personally, I would always opt to take the extra time to make it really great. But, you know, if you're in a hurry, it works. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Barbecue University. This is mm-hmm. uh, this is something you do, right? Uh, these yeah, are... it's a school that I run, yeah. Okay, and and tell people about that. I've I've seen a little bit just kind of online, uh, but what what do they, what are these events and and universities like? So basically, it's a summer camp for adults who uh, like to uh, barbecue and grill, uh, except that it's at a really luxurious hotel with a high thread count linen because that's the only way I can get my to join me. Uh, and in the past. We've been at the uh, Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia. We've been at the Broadmoor Resort in Colorado Springs. Most recently, we were at Montage Palmetto Bluff in I saw that South one. Carolina. Uh, we're looking for a new home for the school. Uh, we'll announce it on the website uh, for the 2023 session. Okay. Um, but, you know, we try and try and change things around, in part because so many of our students are returned students, and we like to put them up somewhere new every year. Are these these are just like remedial students that need a little extra work, or they just they just uh, they just love the chance to come and cook with you for a week. I think it's more the latter, and you know, there's a great sense of camaraderie. I've actually had mm-hmm. two marriages result from my cooking classes. Okay, we had you know friendships form, and uh, it's you know it's just uh, coming together over fire, food, and alcohol. So. Uh, yeah, winning combination. What What's a typical day look like in that? How much are the students really getting their hands dirty and and getting in there and cooking with you? So eight o'clock, you arrive at the classroom. Eight to nine o'clock, there's a continental breakfast. Uh, actually, often a little more late, but having continental breakfast. Uh, nine o'clock, everybody files out to the burn area where I think uh, the last count we had thirty eight grills and smokers. Um, the, you know, the truth be told, uh, breakfast usually lasts 15 minutes and then everybody's out looking at the job. Um, for the first hour of the class, uh, I run through the day's menu. I demonstrate the salient technique, uh, smash cock and chicken, for example, uh, how to remove the uh, membrane from the rack of ribs. Um, and then we divide the group into teams and each team uh, creates two or three dishes as part of the menu. Um, we come together about 15 minutes before noon for the presentation where everybody brings their masterpieces. Uh, then we sit down to a uh, sumptuous lunch. Afternoons and evenings are off for people to play golf or go hiking or go to the spa, or, you know, enjoy the recreational activities and the restaurants in the area. And then we begin again the next morning. Now, one thing that's kind of a trademark of uh, Barbecue University uh, is what I call our science experiments. So let's say your team has been assigned two or three dishes to do. Let's say you are eager beavers and you get those two or three dishes done in an hour, at least an hour free. Well, we have a pantry, very much like an Iron Chef pantry where you can go shop and encourage people to invent their own dishes. So that's led to some pretty fantastic uh, inventions. And if people are, you know, at a loss for uh, imagination, I'd scribble some ideas on a uh, on a piece of paper and turn them loose. And I think one class did 29 dishes in the space of three hours. So uh, that's kind of a yeah, they were uh, they were good. 
That's great. And and all those places you mentioned are, are just wonderful resorts. Can't wait to hear where uh, where you guys are going to head uh, in 23. And, and if folks, if that kind of piqued their interest uh, to get information on that, they should uh, check the website? Yeah, it's barbecuebible.com. Great. B-A-R-B-E-C-U-E-B-I-B-L-E.com. You spell it all the way out. No all easy the way, way out just and, and without the Q. Yeah, <laughs> barbecuebible.com. And um, by the way, while you're there, sign up for my Up um, and Smoke newsletter, which is a free bi weekly newsletter. Everything from talk about gear, tips, holidays, uh, recipes, the latest TV show, my travels. You know, it's pretty much a, a window into right then. What still excites you about uh, cooking today? Uh, it gets you excited to go do another barbecue university. It gets you excited to do another season of of PBS programming uh, because you you could say oh, I've I've kind of done it all. Well, uh, it's always different, you know. With regards to the school, um, I mean, first of all, we've been doing a new series this year. It's called Planet Barbecue, and um, unlike my last shows, we will be traveling as well as grilling. So that's exciting. Um, I always like to say of, of the TV show that it's the two hardest weeks of my year and the two most fun weeks of my year. Hard because, you know, a typical day I'm up at 5 in the morning, I'm one set by 6.30, uh, you know, end of the day, depending on the menu, might be 6 o'clock, 8 o'clock, uh, and then we do that six days straight. So it's extremely, you know, and I'm I'm the guy on the set. Obviously, I have a, a huge crew. And in fact, the reason we do all the behind-the-scenes shots is because I want, you know, I want people to realize that it takes a village to make these things happen. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm I'm sort of the guy that's orchestrating everything. So it's a lot of concentration. That's the hard part. But the fun part is that it's just fun. You know, I've been working with uh, my producer now for 15 years. So. It's sort of a family reunion every time we get together. A lot of, lot of nice. familiar faces. I think the most fun part of the show, we have something called the mystery box, where uh, I come on out uh, on set, and uh, our chef and um, food stylist have put together some ingredients for me that are under a box, and I don't know what I'm going to find. Lift the box, and oh my God, it could be a giant squid, or it could be a plate of chicken livers, or it could be tofu, or it could be, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I come up with a recipe on the spot. So that's really fun. That's great. As you think of the world of, of barbecue in general, are there any trends right now or things that just just kind of annoy you uh, about barbecue, things that uh, folks are doing that you're just like, ah, oh, just stop that? No. Yeah, you seem pretty easygoing. I don't think there's a lot that would, would bug you. Uh, I think you're just kind of... I, I think, honestly, we're um, living through a, an incredible renaissance in the field of live fire cooking. You know, social mm. media, uh, some of the social media influencers, we had Derek Wolf on the show, we had Scott Thomas, we had Dave Olson, yeah. uh, Susie Bullock, and, you know, the stuff they're doing on social media, it's, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, first of all, it takes me a crew of 20 and probably five hours, you know, to do... Uh, one eight-minute segment and these guys you can learn something from start to finish in less than a minute on instagram so right. uh, i'm very very excited you know the other funny thing 
this year is the 25th anniversary of Barbecue Bible. Actually, wow. I should actually say next year. So we're going to be doing a big celebration for that. By the way, if there are any Barbecue Bible uh, fans out there, uh, we've started a new club called the Barbecue Bible 500 Club. And uh, there was a couple in Spain who, during COVID, made it their project to cook every recipe in Barbecue Bible. So they sort of set up this Facebook page and uh, people from all over the world are jumping in. You don't have to cook all 500 recipes. (laughs) Uh, but, you know, at 100, 200, the various prizes, and uh, just, just fun to look at the pictures. Anyway, the point I was going to say is that when I wrote that book, so many ingredients were not available to mainstream Americans. Coconut milk, mm. lemongrass, uh, right. candle nuts, uh, you know, any of the half of Chipotle chilies. I mean, mainly at the cuisine, it wasn't available. So it's been very exciting for me to, to see now... You know, I used to always have to give workarounds in the... Uh, yeah, if you can't books. get coconut milk, use this. And now it's right. in every grocery but store. Every, yeah. every grocery store. So, you know, that's... Uh, yeah, I find it pretty exciting. I really do. Um, I think one trend is sort of uh, what one might call the, the gourmet grill restaurant. You know, a restaurant where the wood-burning grill is the focal point. Um where uh, the food is, you know, it's gastronomic. I mean, the ingredients are mm. impeccable. The sauces are really interesting. Uh, I just was in Europe in the month of May and did, you know, wherever I travel, I'm looking for the grill. So I found <laughs> a fantastic place in Barcelona, a fantastic place in Paris, an amazing restaurant uh, in Istanbul, uh, wow. where, again, you know, uh, wood-burning hearth, the focal point, uh, cuisine of the highest refinement. In fact, there's one restaurant in Spain, it's called Echebarium in Basque Country, that actually has a, it's a Michelin one-star restaurant. Another funny thing I noticed, you know, I always try and, uh, when I was younger, I used to, you know, I had to eat at all the Michelin three stars. And now I find that that experience is a little bit overwrought, but I usually try and work in one or two and I can't tell you the number of Michelin three-star restaurants that have big green eggs in the kitchen. So, wow. you know, obviously these chefs who are just at the, the summit of culinary creativity and excellence love the flavor-boosting power of live fire. Yeah, they see the see the value, see what it does, and how it can absolutely transform a dish. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Uh, you know. Classically trained. We talked about this. W- one thing I- I'm I'm uh, wondering if there's like a mother sauce that people should all know how to do. Uh, what? Where would you start? You say start with this one. Well, I think probably the easiest sauces to get started with are mayonnaise-based sauces. You know, start with good mayonnaise. I like almonds. I know in the south they like uh, that's the one they like. Dukes. Uh, Oops, yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyway, I mean, to that, you add mustard and hot sauce, and you have a great mustard sauce. Uh, to that, you add equal parts, uh, you know, sriracha and mayonnaise, and you've got a great Thai style sauce. Um, add wasabi, you know, dissolve wasabi and a little soy sauce, you've got a great Japanese sauce. Add finely chopped capers, uh, uh, Cornish oil pickles, uh, olives, and uh, and tarragon, you've got a fantastic butter sauce. So, you know, to the extent that there is a mother sauce, that would be it for me. Okay, 
I like it. Now, in the past year, you've you also released a novel, a, a novel, a novel. I don't know what a novel is, uh, but you released a novel, The Hermit of uh, Chappaquiddick. Tell tell me more about this book and like what brought this about, because that's a that's a pretty big uh, you know different path from just writing cookbooks to now a novel. Well, remember I told you I was a front lit, front lit major. Sure. And probably yeah. my, uh, my dream would have been to have been a novelist, but I started food writing and it, you know, <clears throat> pardon me, paid the bills and took me around the world. So it was a pretty cool gig. Uh, but uh, I actually wrote that, that the book came out, the original version of it came out about 10 years ago. Oh, and okay. what had happened was my, uh, my editor at Workman took a um, leave of absence. So I had six months kind of with nobody breathing down my neck for, uh, for another cookbook. And I started writing. Uh, I, I'd had the idea for, I had been sort of percolating for a while. And the idea was that there was a hermit, this guy who lived on Chappaquiddick, the island where I live now, I'm speaking to you from. Mm-hmm. And he lived off the land. He was completely isolated. And then I had to sort of make a romance out of it. So uh, there was a woman named Claire, and I knew her name was going to be Claire, and she was recovering from a terrible illness. And she was a New York book editor, which is the world I know well. And she was edited books, biography books. So uh, that enabled me to kind of incorporate interesting people, real life people, into the story. And for example, the most prominent was an iconoclastic psychotherapist named Bill Helm Reich, who started as a disciple of underkin of Sigmund Freud. And then he got into what were developed, what were called expressive therapies that eventually led to things like uh, psychodrama and uh, bioenergetics and primal screen therapy. But he believed that, uh, you know, your emotions, you had to do more than just talk about expressing and his life had a very interesting passionate and tragic trajectory so i kind of incorporated him into the story uh, it's funny novel writing with that particular one i knew who the characters were i knew how it would begin and i knew how it would end but i didn't mm-hmm. know what happened in the middle and that was the fun part about novel writing well one thing you learn in publishing is that publishers always Preserve the final right to give a book a title. So uh, I had wanted to call the book The Hermit of Chappaquiddick, which is the main protagonist. You know, uh, mm-hmm. for us, the 80 or 90 million baby boomers out there, Chappaquiddick is such a charged word that, mm-hmm. you know, I figured that would do wonders for book sales. But the publishing house, in their infinite wisdom, um, decided instead to call it Island of Party, which is what Chappaquiddick means. But they went from a very, to me, emotionally charged title to a very neutral, bland title. Yeah. Anyhow, the rights just reverted back to me. I redid the book, I, I re-edited it, and brought it out to its original title. So that's probably why you think it's a new book. That's now right, it yeah. Is the Chapp- yeah. Now it is the uh, Hermit of Chappaquiddick. You can order it on Amazon.com or through barbecuebooks.com. Tremendously fun. Love doing it. Turns out writing the second one is harder than writing the first one. Okay. I got uh, got a couple on the back burner, and I'm hoping one of these days I have time to finish. Well, that's great. Well, uh, you know, we'll kind of finish here with some questions that I ask each of our guests. So we're we're kind of winding down our time. Uh, again, appreciate you taking the time uh, for gotcha. us today. Uh, 
real quick, and I know this is uh, this is tough sometimes to do real quick, so we're not looking for you know extreme detail here. Uh, but I love to just kind of get because everybody has a different opinion on this. Just kind of your go-to rib technique for just a you know you're going to cook ribs for the family this weekend. You know what what's your kind of your basic seasoning, and then you're just your kind of overall cook technique on those. Okay, very easy. So first of all. Um, I like baby back for home consumption, they're tender and for good cooking. Yep. Uh, I crust them with uh, my all-purpose barbecue rub uh, or like my Kansas City, uh, Kansas City rub or Carolina pit powder. These are two rubs that I manufacture that are also available on the website. Um, and then they go and I, I tend to cook a little hotter than most people do. Baby back, you can get up to kind of 275, 300. And I like mm-hmm. that because I like gives you a meatier, crisper rib, cooks faster. I might spray with apple cider if I remember. Uh, <laughs> when the meat shrinks back from the ends of the bones by a quarter of an inch, that's my sign that it's done. Sometimes I'll just tear a rib off. I can tear it off. Then I brush it with a barbecue sauce and put it directly over a hot fire to kind of sear the sauce and caramelize the sauce. Yeah. And that's, that's the right of ribs. Yeah, and, and it's perfect, and and I'm I'm a pretty similar technique for our family, uh, and I mean time wise, you, you know, start to finish your, you know, in that three and a half four hour probably, uh, maybe a little less depending on on the on the rack of ribs I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so, but you know, I once wrote a whole book on ribs. It's called uh, <laughs> it's called Best Ribs Ever, right when on ribs or something yeah. like that. So, uh, you, you know, you've written uh, so many, you can't even remember all the cookbook names. You've yeah. what was well, that they change, you know, sometimes they change, you know, from one edition to another. The, yeah. The French edition will be different than the uh, English edition. Yeah. American uh, edition. Let's, uh, we'll move into just our, our real quick kind of bonus round questions here. Uh, what type of music do you listen to, Stephen? Uh, I'm very deep into the Jefferson Airplane at this point. I know that's extremely retro, but that was the music yeah. of my youth. And I like I've it. Uh, been listening to it. I mean, actually, to be honest with you, most of I'm, I'm kind of love studying languages. So most of my listening, I'm either listening to uh, Italian radio or French radio or Spanish radio. Okay. But uh, when I do listen to music, you know, doing the dishes or whatever, it's, lately it's been Jefferson Airplane. I like it. So when uh, when you're grilling, uh, you know what are, what what's in your hand? What are you drinking? Mm. Well, uh, more likely a glass of wine than a beer. Um, sometimes a cocktail. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's it. Are you red wine, white wine, or you you just like all all the varietals? I'm one of those old fashioned guys. Uh, red wine with meat. You know, white wine, yeah. seafood, uh, rosé maybe uh, with seafood, uh, uh, chicken, you can go either way. But since I tend to eat a lot more uh, white wine food than red wine food, often you know, if I'm doing a chicken, I'll make it a red wine. Nice. Uh, if you're not cooking, what are you doing? Uh, you've kind of mentioned some hobbies, some writing, some, some language studies, but uh, what, what keeps you busy when you're not, when you're not cooking? Well, not cooking, not writing, because writing keeps me pretty busy, and TV yeah. keeps me pretty busy. But uh, I love sailing. Uh, I, I, I uh, have a sailboat, and uh, I love to get out on Biscayne Bay. 
so that's a hobby. I'm a avid cyclist, bicycler, and I also a, a, a sort of a incurable multitasker. So if I have to go <laughs> grocery shopping or to the post office, I'll do it on my bike, listening to my uh, my uh, French radio, so I can accomplish three things at one time. Nice. Uh, is there anything that you've you've not cooked that you still want to? Uh, I can't think of it right now, but, uh, if I do, I'll let you know. All right. That sounds good. You've cooked a lot of things. So I, I you know, it would be, if, if it shows up on the list, I feel like you have, you have an outlet to get, uh, to, to get that taken off your list. Um, tell me a time when it didn't go right. When there was a, a great barbecue Bible blooper. Ah, well, that's uh well, first of all, you know, at the end of my shows, we always do the blo- little bloopers. Right. Yeah which uh, the public loves, and I sort of, we we keep it anyway. But one time I was doing a uh, grilling demonstration for the Washington Post and National Public Radio, saying grilled. And I was doing a beer can chicken, that was back in the days when beer can chicken was doing different. And uh, it was a grill I had never used before. And I, the smoker box was in the center of the grill, right over where I had the chicken position. So at one point, I heard something that didn't sound right, lifted the grill lid, and the chicken was like burning with the Bible. Uh, <laughs> so I, uh, you know, I, I blew it out. I uh, crusted the outside of the bird with uh, chopped rosemary, said that's how they do it in Tuscany, and you know, it worked out okay. But that was uh, definitely not one of my better moments. Live in front of a group, of course. Um, well, kind of through the biggest media, you know, in the country. Yeah, yes. So you know, when I ask this question to folks, you know, I'm I'm typically thinking United States regions of barbecue. But if you could only eat kind of one region of barbecue, um, what would uh, what would you what would you choose? Southeast Asia. Southeast I'm going to dodge Asia. the American question because I don't want to get anybody mad at me. But I I. First of all, I love the uh, electrifying flavors of Southeast Asia, the chilies, mm. the lime leaves, the uh, lemongrass, the fish sauce. You know, those are just those are flavors I always love to have in my mouth. And I also love the uh, Southeast Asian way of eating barbecue, which is a little intensely flavored meats, a lot of salads, condiments, vegetables. Uh, yeah. You know, to me, it's a, it's a very healthy way to eat barbecue. Like it. Uh, all right. So, you know, may the smoke be with you. We have, we pay homage to, uh, Star Wars here. Are you, uh, are you a Star Wars fan at all? I have been in the past. I, you know, I don't follow it as much as I used to, but I have been. Sure. Did, did you, did you have a favorite movie kind of, uh, from, from your past when you, when you were consuming? Oh boy. That's, that's a toughie. That's a, that's a long time ago. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, hey, what's what's next for you, uh, Stephen? What's what's coming up that you're excited about that you want to make sure people know? Sure. Well, the next big project for me is uh, taping of my new public television series, uh, Planet Barbecue, Stephen Robinson. Uh, that'll be my new grilling show. Speaking right. of Planet Barbecue, uh, I have just come out with a new line of ready to heat and eat barbecue, brisket, ribs, uh, sausages, uh, chicken wings, 
Uh, you know, because kind of over the course of my career, I've told people how to do it in my books. I've shown them mm -hmm. how to do it uh, on my shows. I've given you the spices you need to do it at home. But I wanted a way for people to actually taste my food the way it would taste if they came to my house. That's and great. so Planet Barbecue was born. Uh, we distribute to a company called uh, Crowd Cow, like crowdsource and cow, like yep. Stare. Um, so crowdcow.com, Planet Barbecue. And um, that's a new project, an exciting project, different project. Uh, in fact, today's blog on barbecuebible.com is about our new pastrami bacon. What we did is we, you know, my two favorite uh, cured and smoked foods, right? Uh, so bacon yes. pastrami. Well, we took bacon and we uh, marinated it in it. a pastrami brine and then rubbed it with coriander and uh, black pepper and smoked it. So uh, so that's a new product. It's really cool. And to celebrate, let's see, on today's blog, we have a pastrami BLT. We've got a pastrami bacon Reuben. Uh, we've got a pastrami uh, bacon and egg breakfast sandwich, shrimp grilled in uh, pastrami bacon. I think we're even doing a, you know, in Utah, they have this crazy hamburger. It's a hamburger. It's a cheeseburger top with uh, sliced pastrami. So uh, we're going to come uh, up with a recipe for that too. Well, it sounds, sounds amazing. Well, I think for uh, all things Stephen Reichland, I think they can go to barbecuebible.com and uh, find out everything they need to know about you there. Man, I really appreciate you joining me today. This has been a blast uh, hanging out, getting to know you, and getting some great tips, and uh, just kind of learning from your vast knowledge of barbecue. Really do appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for listening to the May the Smoke Be With You podcast with Joe Levitt.